Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Today is the first day of winter. We had a, a mild fall, and the long-range forecast looks generally mild for the first half of this winter as well. What effect will the big swings in, in temperatures have on the plants of those of us who like to grow things? What have they had so far? Joining us now with some tips on how to deal with this complicated situation is Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. Uh, he is a regular on our show. And we invite you to call us with your gardening questions. Our on-air number is 212 209 Seven, seven. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Well, thank you, Leonard. It's always a pleasure to be back on your show. The winter solstice is a traditional time for celebration. Do you think those of us who enjoy gardening will have much to celebrate this year? <laughs> oh, I think so, Leonard. You know, it's been a very mild fall. So here at Native Landscapes, and, and most of the gardeners are still out there working the soil, getting their last-minute chores done. And, yeah, this, this warm fall into winter is, is, is a welcome sight for many people who have either procrastinated or haven't gotten to their last-minute mm. garden chores. Well, the northern winter solstice occurs when our hemisphere reaches its maximum tilt away from the sun. And today is the, the day with the shortest period of daylight and the longest night of the year. Does that have a negative uh, impact on uh, many of the things that grow? Not really, Leonard, because it happens every year. I mean, plants have been growing in this region for thousands of years. Millions. They've been going through. Pardon? Millions of years. Well, uh, I say thousands because, you know, we had a um, we had an, uh, uh, you know, an ice sheet come over the area with the last uh, 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 great ice age. Mm. And, you know, things had to start all over again, so to speak. So you're right. It has been millions of years, but. There's always a break or, a, a, you know, a, 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 you know, when the when these ice sheets come and and sometimes things have to start all over again. Mm. But, you know, the winter solstice is, is, is an interesting time. It's it's a time when, you know, fall and winter kind of come together this this one day. Like you said, it's the shortest day of the year. You know, today the sun travels the shortest distance through the sky resulting in the day of the year with the least amount of sunlight, the longest night in the Northern Hemisphere. And if you think about it, in the Southern Hemisphere, below the equator, it's the first day of summer in places like South America and Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, these shortening of days, Leonard, began back in late June after summer solstice, the first day of summer and the longest day of the year. Okay. And um, during the last six months, we have been losing a few minutes of daylight every day. And the plants sense that. And when, when that happens, they, you know, they prepare for, for winter. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, you know, the, the temperature, the precipitation. And like you said, it's been a very mild fall. So, you know, plants went into this dormant period, you know, without too much stress. You know, uh, this summer we had a ton of rain and, and a lot, uh, and the wind and a lot of plants went through a lot of stress, but, Thank goodness this fall they didn't. Uh, and that's here in the Northeast. 
you know, you look across the country at some of the weather trends, you know, they're finally starting to get rain out west uh, and snow. And, uh, you know, these poor people in Tennessee and Kentucky, boy, did they get hit hard last week with tornadoes and and bad storms. That was just a a nightmare. Well, that really will destroy an awful lot of uh, of greenery. But, okay, so the, the plants have been preparing uh, what about us? Uh, it's likely we're going to still have big winter storms. And since the weather is pretty mild at the moment, what can we do to prepare ourselves? Well, Leonard, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the weather's changing. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, since the 1960s, each decade has gotten a little bit colder. And uh, what we need to do to prepare ourselves is, you know, from from a home standpoint, to get our homes ready for the cold weather that's coming. I mean, these trends in weather now seem to be, you know, two or three weeks of warm weather followed by two or three weeks of cold weather. Uh, Like for instance, let's take a year ago, uh, we had a a foot snowstorm uh, in and around uh, mid to late December, uh, which was, you know, for us here, uh, based on the last couple of decades of snow, an early season snowstorm. But the funny part about it was it came, it hit us around mid-December, around the 15th of December, and it was gone by Christmas because these trends of cold followed by warm, followed by cold, are, are, are seem to be, you know, the norm these days. So, you know, getting our house ready, you know, make sure you got plenty of oil in the house. If if you heat by wood, make sure you got plenty of wood ready. You know, make sure the wood is protected so we don't get a lot of rain. I mean, here the next couple of days, I mean, like I said, the the the, for, the, the weather over um, late November, early December was, was very warm. In fact, last week we hit 60 degrees. Hmm. But in the last two or three days, it's gotten very cold. We, we had 16 degrees uh, the night before last up here in Pauling. Last night was very cold. And now we're talking about a little bit of freezing rain and snow, uh, possibly the next couple of days. So this this topsy-turvy up and down weather doesn't seem to be wanting to go anywhere but uh, here. <laughs> we associate a number of trees and plants with this time of year. Evergreens, yew, oak, mistletoe, holly, rosemary, pine, ivy. Why those in particular? Are they the ones that thrive in this kind of weather? Well, you know, uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, a lot of it is has to do, you know, if we're talking about winter solstice through this whole thing, a lot of it has to do with traditions. Um, you know, throughout history, societies held and still hold festivals and ceremonies ce- celebrating winter solstice and evergreens. In fact, indigenous people continue to mark solstice with storytelling and ceremonies. And as part of these ceremonies, plants or solstice botanicals play an important role decorating and part of the ritual <clears throat> and you know evergreens like you said such as the pines juniper and spruce arborvitae christmas fern holly are all on display this time of year evergreens are a symbol leonard of immortality because these plants stay green all year long and i'll give you some examples use represented the death of an old year and with, and the connection between this world and the next world um oaks Trees, oak trees were noted for being long lived. They were symbols of eternal life and were considered the source of protection, strength, and endurance. Birch trees symbolized new beginnings. Mistletoe stood for peace, happiness, and affection. Holly was used for magical protection and for good luck. Pines symbolized peace, healing, and joy. 
<clears throat> this is also the time of the year where many societies reflect and uh, look back and respect their connection with with the natural world. And that's what I'd like to focus on today, Leonard, is our connection to the natural world and and and, and how this winter, winter solstice plays that role in, in our connection with the natural world. Well, let me remind our listeners that uh, they can talk with you directly by calling us on our our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Christmas trees have become a big issue, uh, a big topic of conversation this holiday season. Hasn't the price of trees gone up because there's a shortage of, of the trees that we use as Christmas trees with reports that some of the street tree vendors that cut Christmas trees are selling them for as much as $1,500 a tree? Yes, Leonard. And, wow. and on, that is unbelievable. Uh, and I'll give, I'll give you a little bit of history on what's, uh, what's going on with Christmas trees. Um, there is a shortage of Christmas trees. And uh, there's a shortage of Christmas trees because, you know, there seems to be a shortage of workers on these farms these days, and they're just not able to prune and cut and get these trees out on the market as fast as they can. There's a problem with truckers. There's a, you know, the, the whole system has broken down a little bit. But, uh, you know, the trees that are out there, you know, there's a the, the trees that last and the trees that people want to put in their homes are fir trees. You know, the balsam fir, mm. the Fraser fir, the concolor fir. Uh, the Douglas fir, you know, the reason why people use Christmas tree uh, uh, fir trees is because fir trees have the best needle retention of any Christmas tree. I mean, you can use spruces, you can use pine, but if you're like me and like a, a lot of other people who put Christmas trees in their home, you, you want to keep the trees in the house for, uh, for a long period of time. So, so what the, can we do? How can we maintain an indoor tree so that it remains fresh and doesn't lose its pines? Well, the first thing you want to do, Leonard, is uh, is try to find the freshest tree you can, either at a, a, a Christmas tree uh, site or, or or a place where you cut these trees. If you go to a vendor, you know, go into the lot, you know, put uh, touch the tree. Are the needles falling off? Are they staying tight on the tree? And you want, you know, how does it smell? How does it look? What is its color? So you want to really look at the tree. And make sure that you're picking out a tree that's really looks good and that's really going to last at least a month in your house. And then what you want to do is you want to bring the tree inside your house or apartment. And the first thing, Leonard, you want to do is cut a new uh, cut on the bottom of the tree. Because what a, what a Christmas tree does is it heals itself. Uh, you know, to preserve to preserve the needles, it'll 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 cut it'll make sure that it doesn't lose any more moisture. And it'll seal the bottom of the tree. So what, what, what you want to do is you want to cut that bottom, set it right in water, and the first two or three days it's going to draw a lot of water out of the uh, out of the tree stand. So you want to make sure that you're looking at that stand or you're looking at that water source, and you're making sure you fill it up every 12 to 15 hours. Um, you know, you also want to keep the room that the tree is in fairly cool. Uh, you know, the warmer you keep the room, the quicker the tree is going to lose its needles. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's people are coming, you know, we sell Christmas trees here at native landscapes and some of the big trends I'm seeing in regards to Christmas trees are people are buying live trees more so now. Bald trees. Uh, bald trees, right. Trees with roots. 
And, you know, there's a process to this, too. You know, one of the processes is, you know, you can't keep this tree in the house for more than three to five days because if you do, you fake the tree into thinking that it's springtime. And next thing you know, it's the it, new growth is forming. And, uh, you know, and, and, and if you bring that tree out in January, it, it, it's going to go into shock and die. So the key is <clears throat> to bring that tree in the house, make sure it's only there three to five days and get it back in the yard or put it in a garage where it can stay until spring. Now, if you're going to put it right in the yard after it being in the house, you want to dig that hole now before the ground freezes and put that soil in a, in a heated garage or in an area where it's not going to freeze and make sure that hole that you're digging is big enough so that when the tree goes back outside, it'll fit in there and it'll acclimate in, into its new home. Um, you know, and also, um, you know, there's also a lot of questions going on on whether or not live or, or cut trees or live trees. What's the most environmentally friendly way to go when it comes to a Christmas tree? And I get these questions all the time. You know, do we do we go with a fake tree? Uh, you know, how environmentally friendly is that? Uh, should I go with a cut tree? Should I go with a live tree? And, you know, we'll go down the list. I think the most environmentally friendly Christmas tree you can put in your house are the ones that have the root balls because once you put it outside, you know, these trees are, are, are conducting photosynthesis. They're releasing oxygen in the atmosphere. And a lot of these tree farms where they grow, you know, they got thousands of trees growing in these farms. They're all giving up oxygen and putting that into the atmosphere. So tree farms are a good thing. Yeah, the well, second most if you have a live tree, of course, you could then use it next year. That's right. You could use it next but what, year. Well, what about yeah. what about the ones that are cut? What's the best environmentally friendly method for discarding a tree after the holidays? Well, there's a couple of methods. In New York City, uh, what they do is you put it out in the street and they chip it. Hmm. And, and then you can go uh, possibly to these uh, landfills and maybe grab some of the mulch and use it in your garden. Up here in the country, what we do and what I've done for many, many years is we take the tree out of the house and, you know, I've got quite a bit of woods around my house. I'll tuck that tree in the woods because it'll act as cover for birds that are trying to overwinter in the landscape during real cold spells. When we get 10, 15, 20 below zero in the wintertime, it acts as, acts as a little bit of, of a cover. Also, <clears throat> you can cut the tree and, and you can chip the tree and you can use it as mulch. You got to remember all these evergreen trees have a very uh, when they break down they, they they created a very acidic environment in the soil which is good because most plants in in our uh, neck of the woods like uh, acidic soils so you can chip it you can you can break it down and put it back in your garden and as it breaks down it'll it'll feed and nurture and 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 keep alive a lot of the plants we were just talking about before a lot of your hollies a lot of your rhododendrons a lot of your hemlocks a lot of your blueberries these are plants that like real acidic soil and would benefit from the mulch coming from these christmas trees you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Pete Morosky, who's a, a nursery man and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes and, uh, and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Let's go to our first call. BAI, you're on the air. 
Hi, I'm Linda. First of all, I just want to say I enjoy your program. Actually, I have notified all my friends and family that today I'm in a winter solstice moment, experience, and journey all day today. Second, <laughs> your guest um, listed different Peter. I, I couldn't pronounce your last name, so I didn't want to mess Morosky. up. Morosky. Okay. Uh, what he did is he listed different plants and what they represented historically. And he said it so fast, and I was that's what crossed my ear. It's like, wow, can he repeat it? And also, is there some place I could just get the list so I can share it with people of the different plants, like holly, the trees, you know, everything that you talked about. Rosemary, that was pine, list. mistletoe. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. And historically, he, I'm really into history, so I was really, um, it really perked my ears. So if you can tell me where I can just get the list or... And could you repeat it again for people who might write faster than me and, and they're interested? Thank you. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, you can you can uh, reach out to me. Um, you can call me at uh, Native Landscapes and Garden Center. Our number is 845-855-7050. Um, you can email me at Pete at NativeLandscaping.net. That's Native um, Landscaping. Native landscaping, yes. nativelandscaping.net, not native landscapes, but native mm. landscaping. The name of our company is Native Landscapes, but the email address is nativelandscaping.net. <clears throat> and the list that I gave you are solstice botanicals. In other words, over the years, these are traditional plants, you know, that uh, people use, you know, in Europe, uh, you know, throughout the world as decorations throughout their home and it's not just decorations a lot of these plants uh, have symbolic meaning depending on where you are and 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 where you live um you know i had mentioned and leonard you had mentioned too you know and and we are in, a native plant enthusiasts here leonard and i so when it talk when we talk about evergreens uh throughout the winter we, we're talking about you know, in, in this part of the world, native evergreens mm. like white pine, uh, you know, white pine is the type of plant you can find, uh, you know, growing in just about uh, every yard here uh, in the northeast. And it has this soft needled pine and they make great uh, wreaths. They make great roping. We, we sell yards of white pine roping here at the garden center. Juniper, the juniper virginiana, which is the eastern uh, native juniper. The beauty about the, the beauty for the of the juniper is that it's got these beautiful blue berries on it this time of year, and 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 the contrast between the pine and the texture and 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 the juniper berries is is really just you know a beautiful combination. And then spruces, you know, the native spruces here in the northeast um, is the white spruce, the red spruce, and and the red spruce, but. You know, uh, Norway spruce have naturalized into our environment. Uh, Serbian spruce are all, are also naturalized, and, and, they, they and they're okay, little... Pete, because you don't you generally don't like things that aren't indigenous. Well, I'm okay when you use them as a decoration for the holidays. I'm not a big fan of planting them in your yard because they have no ecological significance, but. Using them for decorations might be a little bit of a different uh, perspective. If, if you know, if you're European uh, and and you and you like the Norway spruce, you know, a lot of people do like the Norway spruce. But you know, let's stay with the natives right now. The arborvitae, uh, you know, the American arborvitae have a little bit of a different texture, and they have real nice 
um, you know, real nice berries, and they're very aromatic, you know. Uh, the Christmas fern. This is an evergreen fern that you can find growing in the woods. One of the few evergreen ferns. There's cinnamon ferns. There's a lot of different ferns growing in the woods. But, you know, the Christmas fern is the one that stays evergreen. And that's the fern that we use quite a bit, you know, in a shady location around landscapes, around people's houses. It's really a it, 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 it doesn't overpower an area. It stays very low. It stays only about a foot, a foot and a half off the ground. Uh, and it's, it's really a, 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 a beautiful accent to, to a garden. Now, some of the other plants that I had recommended that your uh, your listener was um, was was re- reported was wanted me to talk about were the use or the taxes. You know, the taxes are native um, and, and, you know, they have. Like I said, a lot of these evergreens have a bit of a symbolic meaning when it comes to winter solstice and, and in the holiday season. Like the ewes, you know, represented death of an old year, okay, and, 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 and the connection between this world and the next. I mean, that's, you know, that's some of the symbolic meaning of, of, of some of these old um, uh, you know, traditions, okay? Oak trees were noted for being long-lived. And if any, any of you know about like the white oaks, the red oaks, the pin oaks, I mean, some of the oldest trees, uh, oak trees on the East Coast can be found uh, in the Bronx in and around the New York Botanical Garden area, you know, the Sawmill River uh, uh, Parkway, you know, the Bronx River Parkway. There's some old ancient trees that still exist. You're talking about hundreds of years? hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And some of these, you know, some of these trees are six and eight foot in diameter Mm. and oak trees, you know, I mean, if you're going to plant a tree on your property, oak trees sustain 230 different species of insects, animals, and birds, you know, between their nests, between their, uh, you know, their fruit, uh, their flower in the springtime. And, and no oaks are noted for being long lived, they are, uh, they are a symbol of eternal life and were considered a source of protection and strength and endurance. And, you know, this goes back to when we were hunter-gatherers that, you know, we used to eat the, the oak um, uh, 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 fruit. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some of us still do. You can make a, a flower out of it. Birch trees, which you can find all over. You know, the native birch, the paper birch, the river birch, uh, the yellow birch, the black birch. You know, they symbolized new beginnings, you know, uh, in a forest, <clears throat> you know, because they were one of the first species. In other words, when you clear cut a forest, birches are one of the first, first species that'll that'll come up in, a, in an empty field. And then, you know, as as the field progresses, it, it, you know, then you get your bigger trees, your maples and, and your hickories and your oaks. You know, mistletoe stood for peace and happiness and affection. Holly, our native holly, Ilex opaca. Uh, you know, this is a plant that you can find growing in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, out on eastern Long Island, you know, on Fire Island and the south shore of Long Island. It's a beautiful tree uh, that has the, you know, and, and people love it this time of year because it has the red berries. And the nice part about it, too, if you plant it on your landscape, it's a tough tree. The deer don't eat it. And it's, it's, it's one of the more handsome broadleaf evergreens you can plant on your pot property and you know the holly was used for magical protection and good luck you know and once again we're back to the pines which symbolize peace healing and joy i mean you know there's a there's a there's a lot going on between botanicals and winter solstice um leonard and you know maybe this might be a good time to talk about 
some interesting facts. Well, let's in regard. Let's put it off for a moment because I want to get to some more of the calls and we can come back to some of these things, okay? And I thank that caller for calling us. There are a number of people hanging on. So let's get to the next one. BAI, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Um, My name is Andrew. Hi. Um, I'm interested in finding out how to make a good organic compost for planting in the spring and how do you store it? And can you use like um, the, the you know the trees, the Christmas tree, in the in the uh, compost? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of it depends on how much uh, space you have. <laughs> you know, if you have a space or a yard, you know, like uh, you know, if you have like an acre or half an acre or a quarter of an acre, you can put a little area off to the side where you can um, where you can store these leaves. And I know, Leonard, we've talked about this in the past. Leaves are nature's mulch. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got big trees on your property, take those leaves and put that in the compost area along, um, you know, with a lot of, you know, uh, kitchen parts, you know. Um, and you and say don't burn them. A lot of people burn right. the leaves, but it's better to use just them use them for, for mulch? For compost. Yeah. yeah, you use them for compost. And the nice part about leaves is that when they break down, they they, they create what, these call, what we call the black gold, this, this whole beautiful black, dark, rich mulch. And, it, you know, it's so many, you know, uh, mycorrhizal fungi live in it. Beneficial insects that live in our yard uh, tend to overwinter in the leaves. So na- native leaves from oaks, maples, birches, and all these wonderful trees that grow in the yard are so important. And they make, they're such a, they're, they're a base for a lot of our composts, uh, you know, for our gardens. Okay. Thank you. True re- recycling. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for calling us. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Am I on? That's you. I want to say what an asset Pete is on the program. Oh, thank you. And it stays, keeps us local. It's a wonderful thing. I, I'm happy to have an oak that self-seeded. But it decided to grow under the power line. So we'll see how that goes. Well, you know, um, don't be afraid to transplant that tree before it gets too big to another no, part of your property. No, it's too big now. It's too big now. Oh, all right. right. Well, when it, next time something like that happens and it's young, get out there and, and, and dig it right out because oaks – you know, and, and I'll tell you a little bit of thing about oaks and, and, and birches when it comes to transplanting. They like <clears throat> they like being transplanted this time of year when they're when they're dormant mm-hmm. or late in the in the in the, mm-hmm. in the winter. Um, you know, they have a very deep root system, but if you get them young, uh, your success rate will be very high. No, I don't have a lot of places to put an oak. Um, I wanted to say <laughs> on a serious note and try to keep it short, but this season was to be celebration or interruption of dark, and we know what's happened to that. It's uh, become the uh, season of Christmas light pollution. But moving on from that topic, I would like to say to Leonard that he said something about a bald tree. Leonard, I don't think we want 
bald trees, but that's okay. Well, I meant B A L L E D, not B A L D. I know you. Did. I know you love those homonyms. <laughs> yes, Bye. I love homonyms. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you for calling. I know, as I was saying, bald trees. I was wondering if anybody was going to hear it wrong. Let's take another call. B A I, you're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. Hi, I just want to suggest something that I always did, and it works great. Just get a vase, get some boughs from the forest or from the little farm, and, and assemble a nice tree, and as they sort of fizzle out in about 10 days, then go get some more. Uh, it's sent to the room. If you have kids and they want to get really arty, you can put a piece of oasis in there, and they can form their own small tree. And to keep the humidity high in the room, it really does help keep them a lot longer. What would keep on hacking everything down like we're in the 18th century is beyond me. That's a great, great suggestion. And, and bringing the smell of Christmas or the holidays into the house is always, is always welcome uh, in, in, in every home, you know. And Except that there are the problems. Time. Aren't trees that produce resins for frankincense and myrrh have been used for thousands of years in healthcare, worship, and trade, facing collapsing populations because of the way that they're being drained? It, they are, Leonard, and and we've got to be careful with where we get these uh, a lot of where a lot of these plants come from and and where we're we're pulling them from. And what I was going to suggest is, you know. We can once again. We're talking about native plants. When you want to do these botanical uh, decorations in your house and water, you know, it's it's all about the the different textures of what you put in 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 the water. The the balsam fir, the spruces, the arborvitae, even the winterberry holly, the ilex reticulata has a has a great berry, and 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 many of the other berries that you'll find out in nature. You know, you want to bring in and, and, and create this whole holiday feeling inside the house and, and these, these beautiful holiday smells. And that was a great suggestion by your last caller. And we thank you so much for calling. Again, the number here is 212-209-2877. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. But before I get back to Pete, I just want to remind you that this is the end of the year, the end of fiscal year 2021. And uh, WBAI is trying to take charge of our tower rent at four times square, try to make a significant dent in the debt. We owe a lot of back rent. Our tower rent is about $17,000 per month. So that's a sizable amount of money. And if you can see your way to help us, we would really appreciate it. We ask you to call us at 212-209-2950 to 
show your support. Any amount would be helpful uh, because um, right now, at the end of the year, by the way, I guess it's tax deductible as well, but we really do have to catch up with that rent. Uh, if we don't, well, if we lose the tower, of course, we can't broadcast anymore. So I really hope that you'll give us a call at 212-209-2950 and show your support for WBAI. And let's go to, well, before we go to any more calls, um, Pete, there are a few other things that uh, I wanted to talk about. Um We've talked in the past shows about invasive plants and the difference between native plants, non-native plants, and invasive plants. Have things improved in that regard in recent years because more people have been aware of the native plant initiative? Yes, they have, the Leonard. And you know, over the over the last couple of years, um, we have gone gone into a little bit of a war against invasive plants. And um, let me just go into what what's the difference between uh, invasive plants and, um, and, and, and uh, native plants. And, and, for and, instance- And why you prefer one over the other. That's right. Okay, uh, invasive plants are non-native plants that have displaced native plants and in many cases have disrupted native ecosystems and have very little ecological significance. Non-native plants have little or no nutritional value for native insects, birds, and animals because non-native plants are relatively new to our new world North American landscape. So the native birds and the insects who that are here and that have been here for thousands, maybe millions of years in some cases, they all uh, have been working in harmony with the plants. Not only that, Leonard, but these new plants we're bringing in from other continents and, and, and other parts of the world our bugs can't digest these these berries from these other plants because you know they've never eaten them before, and, and you know they're unfamiliar with the non-native fruits and flowers. And in many cases, non-native plants cannot be digested, like I said before, by local wildlife. You know, you look at a garden that has a mix of native plants and non-natives. And, and, and you will find insects and birds working the natives and not the non-natives, Leonard. And this is called selective feeding based on evolutionary existence. Hmm. And that's what this whole concept is all about. And that's why native plants are so important. You know, you hear these stories about how, how some birds and insects and animals are on the verge of uh, extinction. And that's because when we rip and tear out an environment, and we're putting in a you know a new McDonald's or or a new Target or you know or or a new box store. You know we're not bringing back the plants in the parking lot that were there before. You know we're bringing back generic plants uh, like calorie pears and and barberry and boxwood and you know animals and 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 insects. They just can't eat these plants because they're not familiar with their berries. But, you know, there's a movement going on right now to bring a lot of these natives back in the landscape. And, you know, I'm seeing with with, with a lot of local architects in in a sense that, you know, we're, we're bringing, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of these designs that are incorporating much more native plants in the landscape. And let me tell you something, Leonard, it couldn't happen too soon. But Pete, one other thing, uh, haven't some of the, the tree species that have become very popular here that were brought in from Asia now started suffering from imported diseases that uh, the, the, 
that the ecology, local ecology can't really handle? Well, Leonard, this goes way back. I mean, I mean, you look at the American chestnut tree uh, and, you know, the chestnut blight was started by, you know, a disease, a fungus that, 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 that came, you know, from Europe. You know, you look at the Dutch elm disease, you know, you know, it wiped out all these elm trees because, you know, the disease, you know, came came over from from Europe. You look at hemlock woolly adelgid, you know, here's a bug and a disease that happened, you know, because we're moving plants around the planet. I, I, I think we've learned that it's not a good practice to bring plants to an area where they've never grown before because you never know what insect and diseases they may be bringing with them and they're going to wipe out our, you know, our, our whole plant uh, uh, zone that we have here. Like, for instance, ash trees. You know, the, the, the ash borer, anthracnose, and they're killing ashes. You know, there's, there's very few ashes left. And this is happening on an alarmingly quick rate. And we just can't keep up with it. And, and, and we can't, you know, there's no spray. There's no, there's no preventative measures because, you know, we're moving these plants around the planet so fast that, you know, we can't keep up with the problems that they're causing. I want to remind our listeners that they can speak with Pete directly by giving us a call. Our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. We've also talked about uh, matters of major concern like the epizootic hemorrhagic disease, EHD, that affects deer. What causes it? Is that also important? Well... That's a good question, Leonard. Um, and and uh, let me give you a little bit of history on what the, wh- where this came from uh, and, and what it's all about. Um, it's it's transmitted to the deer by midge flies, uh, which people may know as the noceum flies. You know those type of flies that can that can squeeze between um, your screens and, and get into the house. Um, <clears throat> these flies you're going to find in the fall in and around, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, mostly in, in swampy wet areas. And in New York State, the Department of Environmental Conservation confirmed the EHD disease in Columbia County, Dutchess County, Green, Nassau, Oswego, Suffolk, Putnam, Westchester, Orange, Rockland, and Sullivan counties. <clears throat> Excuse me, Leonard. It's a fatal disease or it's a fatal virus. And it's not spread from deer to deer, but from fly to deer. Okay, first confirmed in New York State in 2007, the disease traveled quickly. Uh, Once infected by the EHD disease, the deer die within 48 hours. That's the amazing part about this whole thing. Uh, Humans are not affected by the bites uh, of the midge fly. And the uh, the EHD is common in late summer. That's because when that's when the midge flies are out uh, biting and mating. You know, they they need blood to mate and and lay their eggs. uh, signs of the EHD in deer are uh, dehydration or a lame appearance, and the deer will work its way to a water source and die. Um, you know, we did a big planting up in Pine Plains, New York, uh, about a month ago, and it was on a farm, and uh, we were planting uh, river birches out in a wet area of the farm, and they had about a five-acre pond on the back part of that farm, and uh I walked around the pond because there was a lot of waterfowl in the pond and I must have seen about six or eight dead deer around the edge of the pond. And it was really disturbing for me to see that, you know, this 
this deer midge fly disease is really a, a deer pandemic. And, um, you know, it started in the South. Uh, but, you know, the good news is, Leonard, is that the deer in the South have developed an immunity. So uh, I guess what needs to happen is, you know, as this thing starts, as this uh, deer disease starts to peak out, out, out in the natural world, um, we're going to, you know, the deer do build up an immunity against it. And uh, let's hope that happens. Um, and that might stop the spread of this mid, midge fly disease, uh, you know, in the next couple of seasons. But where it came from, I, you know, I, I don't really know. And I think that's that's a big question yeah. uh, everybody's asking. You know, I know it started in the south and it's now working its way to the northeast. But uh, I myself don't know the source of this midge fly pandemic. This I'm going to get pandemic. to some more of our Callers, our number here is 212-209-2877 in just a moment. But a lot of our listeners don't have an outdoor space. They just simply grow things in their homes. Uh, what about indoor gardening? For example, how far should we keep indoor plants from radiators? Uh, or should we stick them only on the windowsill? Or, um, you know, what are the things that are good conditions for indoor plants? Well, Leonard, that's a great question, and I, and I think that the, the answer to that question lies in the type of plants you want to put in your house. You know, the easiest plant for an indoor environment is a, a type of cactus or, or succulent that tolerates um, an indoor dry environment, because you got to remember this time of year, the indoor uh, indoors of our house turn into a desert, and, you know, with the dry heat, you know, uh, relative humidity uh, is 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 down around 15 to 20 percent when it gets really cold outside. So a lot of these succulents are a perfect fit for indoor environments in and around our, our house. But if you got a room that's a little bit cool and, and, and you have a heating system that has is a little bit more moist, you know, you can go with plants that like it a little bit wet. And also um, mist your plants on a regular basis this time of year. You know, you got to be careful. And, and you know, I, I, I know, uh, you know, some of your calls in the past, we've had a, they've had a problem with overwatering because even though plants are growing inside the house, they do go. They do go through a period of dormancy. OK, where they don't require a lot of water. Hmm. So, like you said, you want to keep plants away from direct heat sources, especially if it's a dry heat source, and you want to keep them in a, in a bright location and not so much in a full sun environment, you know, maybe an Easter or West window where they're getting half a day of sun. Uh, but if you do, if you are lucky enough to have a window where it faces south, you know, it's going to be real important to miss those plants and keep them a little bit moist, especially this time of year when the indoor of our houses are so dry. Okay. Should we take some more calls? Sure. Okay. BAI, you're on me? the air. Is that me? You. Yes. Hi, gentlemen. I'm loving the show. It's always wonderful. Learning a lot today. My question is I have a couple of mimosa trees uh, right outside the house, and they're about 25 feet high, and how 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 easily could they be moved? Is that possible? It is. Um, you know, uh, you know, growing up on Long Island, you know, I just love love mimosa trees. They're they're a real tropical looking tree, and um, you know, I don't know how I don't think they're very native, but they're they're just a beautiful looking tree. Um, yes. You can move them. 
Uh, what is the diameter of the trunk of these trees as it, where, where they're coming out of the ground? I'd say about five or six inches. Yeah, they can be moved, and now would be the time to move them. You know, um, get in there, you know, get somebody who, who, who can really drum lace a, a, a root ball and, uh, you know, make sure there's plenty of moisture in the ground, and, and in nine out of ten spots there is. But, yes, mimosas can be moved, <clears throat> excuse me, this time of year, and uh, you just got to make sure you get a, a proper root ball. And, you know, mimosa do have surface roots, so you want to make a root ball that's a little bit wider than it is deeper to get, those, to get all those surface roots. And, um, you know, make sure you move it in a similar location to where it's growing now. Mimosa likes full sun. You know, try to keep that new spot uh, that, that you're putting it in the full sun and not so much in more of a shady environment because, you know, the plant will start to decline if it doesn't get enough sun. Okay. I see. What, what about moving it in, like, like say, early spring? Is that, is that recommended? Yes, it, it, but you got to move it before bud break. You know, once the buds start to swell and break, then, you know, then, it, then you're getting a little, it's getting a little too late. But if you can move this plant before, or this tree, uh, before bud break, you'll be in good shape. Thanks okay. so much for your call. Let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. I'm from New Jersey. Yeah, and Pete and Leonard, thank you guys so much for this. This is wonderful. God bless you. Uh, Pete, do you have classes in permaculture, uh, native gardening, and, and organic farming? Well, you know, I, I was an adjunct professor for a while at um, Westchester Community College, um, but I, I do a lot of writing, and you know, I I I should start these classes up at the garden center. And now you've now you now you're making me think about that. Inspiring. So maybe I will get back into it, and uh, and and I'll and I'll get into permaculture. You know, permaculture. What a great subject that is, and and organic gardening. So yes, let me give that some thought and. And, and go on to Native Landscaping uh, that our Facebook page, and I'll post uh, when uh, these classes may, may begin or resume in the springtime. Okay, thank you. Uh, and a reminder that you're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Pete Moraski, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, and a regular contributor to this show. And he can be reached, among other ways, at Native Landscaping, is it? at NativeLandscaping.net, yes, Leonard. Okay. Okay, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hey, I'm just wondering what the advisement is on. The advisement is on what? On watering soiled plants. I, I had heard that you should give them a nice full drink. Once you feel that there's some dryness in the soil, give them a nice full drink just the way if you were thirsty, you would want to drink, you know, your fill. Mm -hmm. And also if you have any input on um, uh, aeroponic and how that compares to soiled plants as far as like their health and nutrition if you're growing food plants? Yes, well, let's start with the watering. You know, generally uh, what you want to do, especially this time of year or any time of year uh, for a plant is, you know, let them, you know, water them heavily and let them let them almost dry out completely before you water them again. Overwatering seems to be just as much of a problem when it comes to watering as underwatering. And once again, it's all a function of weather. You know, if it's a very damp time of year, 
You know, you don't have to water too much because the relative humidity is up. But like this past summer when we were getting those 90, 100 degrees days and the humidity was up, you know, plants like us go into, go into stress and they, they perspire just like we do. I mean, the average tree loses 50 gallons of water a day wow. uh, during the heat of the summer when it's in leaf. So you want to really get familiar with weather and how it pertains to plants uh, from an indoor and an, and an outdoor situation. Now we're talking. Now the, your next question was in regards to plants uh, like um, that that don't have a rooting system, and 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 you know uh, that that live in the trunk of trees or 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 or, or something like that. Uh, um, they they depend on misting and and water from the air you'll find that a lot of these plants that don't have roots tend to grow in an area where the humidity is a little bit high so you may want to make the humidity or or mist the plants on a regular basis for plants that don't or are not able to get nutrition and 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 water from from their roots in the soil and also you know you want to, you know, when you mist them, you want to put a little bit of fertilizer in, in the mist uh, 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 so that they can they can absorb some nutrition through the leaves um, of, of the plant. Okay. Thank you for your call. Let's go to another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay. Uh, I have a, a Chinese elm hedge that uh, it was partially destroyed by somebody's car. I tried to root some of the branches by putting them into very thin branches into water, and they did develop a very small white uh, uh, roots. Later on, about a month or so ago, I decided to put those into dirt to see if they would grow. And of the 10 that I planted that had the roots on them, only two maintained leaves. Uh, They've since lost their leaves. I put them outside to mimic what the atmosphere is like, uh, where they should be at this time of year. Did I do it right, or is there something I'm missing? You know, it's very tough to propagate trees. You know, no, you're doing the right thing. And, you know, you can talk to growers out there, you know, without using rooting hormone. And, 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 you know, I mean, you know, as as a beginner, you know, I would say 20% Mm -hmm. is, is pretty good. You know, if you got oh, two out of ten right. plants to survive, um, but you know, planting them outside, you know, try to you know try to go down to your local garden center next time you attempt something like this and try to get some rooting hormone, and you'll find that your success rate will be much higher on many of these plants uh, because it, it'll it'll grow roots a lot quicker than um, than just you know putting it in wet soil. Okay, right. congratulations, and thank you for your call. And Pete, we have very little time left, but I did want to address one thing that we have discussed in the past that's really important, and that's the whole matter of pesticides. Because haven't studies shown that pesticides can be linked to cancer, Alzheimer's disease, ADHD, and even birth defects with the potential to harm the nervous system, the reproductive system, and the endocrine system? That's a lot. Well, you know, Leonard, there's a lot of nasty pesticides out there, and you're exactly right. The, you know, some of the worst pesticides that are being used right now are the neonicotinoids, and I don't know if, if you've heard what's going on with them. They are literally destroying the nervous system of a lot of our pollinators, a lot of our native bees and stuff. Mm. So a lot of these plants really need to be banned. And, you know, let's go back in history a little bit about some of the 
some of the plants, uh, some of the pesticides that we use over, you know, you look at bald eagles and birds of prey, you know, bald eagles were basically almost went extinct because of DDT back in the 60s and 70s. They were making the shells so soft. And they used Since to have hair been- before they had to go bald. <laughs> <laughs> well, back on that subject again. huh? <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, the, these a lot of these pesticides, we really need to look at the chemi- the chemistry behind the pesticides that we're using. Well, are there uh, any that you recommend? Because we've had a whole bunch now that are uh, wound up in in court. Yeah, you know, a lot of the um, a, a lot of a lot of the benign salts and soaps are still highly recommended. But in in a small garden setting, as in and around our homes. I much prefer the mechanical method, going out with a sponge and, and wiping down the, the aphids and, and, and the scales on the plant, you know, th- you know, misting the plant with water. I mean, this is how Mother Nature takes care of it uh, out in the woods. And, you know, you know it, it'll work in your home environment, too. You just got to get familiar. Get yourself a magnifying glass and get familiar with, you know, changes in your plant. Uh, you know, d- premature dropping a leaf, black spots on plants. You know, these are all warning signs that something's going on and, and we need to do something to alleviate a problem. And many times, many times it can be done without any pesticides or chemicals at all. And we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Pete Morusky is a nurseryman and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And Pete, one more time, how can people contact you? Because uh, you'll, you'll be back on our show in a few months. But uh, in the interim, I'm sure there are a lot of questions that people have. Well, you can call us at 845-855-7050, or you can email us at Pete or email me at Pete at nativelandscaping.net or nlpauling at gmail.com. Or hmm. come on up to Pauling and take a ride Route 22. Uh, up 22, about an hour and a half north of the city, and come hike the Appalachian Trail that goes right through the Garden Center. We'd love to see you here. Thanks again, Pete. See you soon. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Jesse Lent, the executive producer of London Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you can get your podcasts. And you will find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me your comments about something you've heard on the show or simply to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. Surprise, surprise. So we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting this station to please go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212. Uh, oh, let me get that number again. 212 uh, 209. Uh, what is it, Jess, uh, there? 212 209 2950. 2950. I'm suddenly, uh, I found uh, I had in my, in my uh, thing here the old number, the 0516 number. But anyway, um, 
Why not become a part of this amazing community of Leonard uh, Lopate at Large uh, listeners? That's our only source of funding. Give us a call now, please. Uh, It's tax deductible at the end of this year. We're off tomorrow, but we hope that you can join us again for Thursday's show when Deborah Caldwell Stone of the American Library Association will discuss the past, present, and future of banned books in America. We'll see you then. And remember, keep on calling the number 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI. Dot org.